In the holy name of Jesus, amen. In our heads, we all have a picture of the perfect kingdom. In that kingdom, we are all kings and queens. From the fabulous life to cribs to pretty, pretty princess. I am the pretty, pretty princess family champion, by the way. We imagine a kingdom where we are served and served well where every day is a day at the Ritz, where all my lessers are at my beck and my call. That is the kingdom for me. But unfortunately for me, none of that looks like the kingdom in the gospel for today. Jesus' kingdom really is a horse of a different color. The shortest and clearest way to say it is this. Jesus is the kingdom. So whatever happens to Jesus is the happening of his kingdom. And in the church, in Lent, we all know what happens. Still, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and so this morning, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, comes to Jesus with an idea of a kingdom that looks somewhat like traveling basketball team where a bad dad is the coach. Whatever is good for my kid is good for everybody. Jesus, she says, my boys are the best boys. So if they can't be king, could they be little kinglets? One to your right, one to your left. Then Jesus blows out a sigh the way that teachers do when nobody has been paying attention. Because, as we will learn in another 19 days, in this particular kingdom, on your right and on your left is not particularly good product placement. In another 19 days on Good Friday, on your right and on your left, turns out to have absolutely nothing to do with Ritz or Beck or Call. Just ask Gestus and Dismas, the hanging thieves. When he is done sighing, Jesus, ever indulgent, tries to manage her a bit. He tries to give her a way to save face. When we get to Jerusalem, says Jesus, can you all drink the cup? that I am going to drink. And now the boys pipe up too, cheerfully, confidently, oddly. Sure, they say. Okay, says Jesus, okay. Wondering why they would be praying to experience precisely what he is praying to avoid. Gethsemane. My father, if this is possible, let this cup pass. But of course it's not. The cup is not taken away from Jesus. In 19 days he will end up on the cross. And in the end, the cup is not taken from the disciples either. As near as we can say, five got crucified, three got beheaded, two got hacked to death, one got stoned, and poor old St. Bartholomew got skinned alive. 
To the right and to the left of him they die. To the east and to the west, to the north and to the south, they die. It is, as the radical priest Father Berrigan once said, this way. If you are going to be a Christian, you better look good on wood. This morning, you and I have 2,000 years of perspective, but I am still not sure that we are any better at telling the difference between our kingdom and his kingdom. How else could we explain our bungling? Jesus says very clearly in the gospel for this morning that his kingdom amounts to this. The Son of Man will be betrayed, condemned, mocked, flogged, and crucified. And yet we live in a time in praise of churches that no longer have a cross, no longer have a confession, no longer have a creed, no longer have a cup to be drunk, no longer have a Christ like that. It's too much bother. Nobody will come. Bitter death will not play in Peoria, not even during Lent. In a sense, then, I suppose that Lent is your chance to leave the church. One way to write the history of the church is to write a history of its expatriates, those who have fled the kingdom of Jesus for another kingdom of their liking, more in the way of Ritz and Beck and Call. You remember that that is how it was in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, I am the bread come down from heaven. And lots of folks who had been willing to put up with his nonsense up to that point for the odd free meal or healing suddenly said, that's it, he's a crazy man, this is the end, we go home. Jesus lost a lot of customers that day. Was it poor product placement? But he didn't retract, and he didn't retool, and he did not redirect his course away from Golgotha. He just counted noses. He turned to the few disciples, the very few who were left, and he said, Are you going too? Maybe if they were going, he would have been in time to stop delivery on all those extra crosses and sharp knives. You're going too, he says. And Peter replied, where? Where else is there to go? This is the only thing that matters. Alleluia, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, that was the bit I left out back there in verse 19. The Son of Man will be betrayed and condemned and mocked and flogged and crucified and rise again on the third day. No Easter without Good Friday, and no Good Friday without Easter. So someday, Peter and Andrew and Philip and Jude and Simon will be uncrossed. And Matthew and James Zebedee and Matthias will be reheaded. 
And James Alpheus and Thomas and Simon will be unslashed and unstoned. And old St. Bartholomew will get his skin back, just the way it shows on the wall in the Sistine Chapel, where the angel shakes out the wrinkles and carries it back. So maybe you all want to hold on for that. Maybe you don't want to quit at all. Maybe you want to stick around through Lent and come see what Easter is all about. The world is a big place, and life is complex. To make our lives easier, we like to sort our lives into little boxes with clear definitions that fit our own experience. That is the way that we become racist and gossips and thoughtless prigs. It is far easier to engage our version of reality than God's reality. It happens in the church, too. So often in the church we are bound by our own imaginations, our own presuppositions, as if we needed to protect the church from God. So often we are bound by the boxes that we use to sort persons and places and things. Lazarus is dead as a doornail. And Zacchaeus owes me money. And the woman at the well, with her past, she's going nowhere. And Peter is not management material. But then Jesus shows up, offering his cup. You drink, you wretch, you suffer. You die, but you rise again. And Peter takes his stand on Pentecost, and Zacchaeus pays me back. And the woman at the well can't stop saying, he must be the guy. Don't you think he's the guy? And Lazarus comes out, and you, you sit where you are told, right or left east or west or north or south, you sit where you are told and you come to realize that sitting wherever Jesus tells you to sit is a really, really good seat. I do not know that the mother of James and John was a bad woman. She was certainly not any worse than we, not any worse than you or I. But she is like those folks who never get over high school or their first love or the no-hitter they pitched in the fifth grade. They get stuck in time, in their last, great, only success. And they really can't think about the world anymore in any other way. There she is, standing next to the king of the universe, But she's stuck in time, in culture, and in herself. In the only way that she can think about life, about kings and queens and kingdoms in the way of power and force and luxury and being served, not serving. Ritz and beck and call, and me first. Granted, it is tempting, and it is easy. It is the temptation which Satan offered to Jesus in the wilderness. Bow down, worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. 
It is the temptation of the mockers at Golgotha. If you just come down from the cross and show us that you're the Christ, we will follow. It is the temptation to be an expatriate, to find another king, another country, another savior, another church. It is tempting. It is also deadly. Lent is a tempting time to leave the church. It is also a tempting time to stay. Where else in all the world is there a king like this? One who will have you just as you are, even with all your categories and presuppositions. Where else is there a king who will forgive it all in advance? And keep you with him forever. Nowhere. Except here at the altar and the pulpit and the font. There is no one but him. Right here. For you. Right now. Happy Lent. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen.